Hello, and welcome to the Unconventional Path, Entrepreneurship and Innovation Stories and Ideas. I'm Bela Musitz. And I'm Mike Wasserman. Hey, Mike, today's guest on the podcast is Erica Cole. She is the founder of No Limits. This is a super interesting company with a mission. No Limits was created with the goal of providing easy and accessible solutions to everyday problems. Let's get a little more specific. After losing her leg in a car accident in 2018, Erica found that her new prosthetic leg wasn't compatible with her existing wardrobe. So she came up with a solution to the problem, a new business. Cool. Bela, I don't want to take away anything from any of the 150 plus guests that we've had on this podcast over the last few years, but just on paper, this is one definitely one of the most interesting business people you've interviewed, in my opinion. So let's get right to it and uh, listen to your interview with Erica Cole. Sounds good, Mike. Hi, Erica. Nice to meet you. Hi, great to be here. Glad to have this conversation. Yeah, so I think your business is really interesting to me. So uh, tell our listeners a little bit about it and what, what your business does. Absolutely. I am the founder of a company called No Limits, um, spelled L-I-M-B-I-T-S, and that is because I'm an amputee. We make clothing for people with disabilities. So um, started off making clothes for, for people with lower limb difference like myself, but we've recently launched a wheelchair collection, a sensory-friendly collection, and also um, some cool pants for people who have limited dexterity or range of motion in their hands and arms. And so um, we're really trying to make life more comfortable and independent for people with disabilities through clothing. Yeah. Wow. That sounds really neat. So this sounds like one of those businesses where you saw a need, uh, you directly saw a need, and you responded to it and decided to start a business. Absolutely. Um, it was kind of a slow roll, actually. So I started in, um, I lost my leg in 2018, started on a sewing machine, just altering clothing in 2019. And then in 2020, uh, really went all in on the business when we were scouted by Target Incubator. Um, and so I do not have a business background. I actually majored in chemistry and was working on my chemistry degree at the time, but then ended up um, just, I had this need to like see how far I could take this, especially once we got the invitation from Target Incubator to be in that program. Um, now here we are three years after that going strong. It's pretty exciting. Yeah. So uh, tell us a little bit about Target Incubator and where it's located. Yeah. So Target Incubator was um, was a virtual cohort when we went through it, but it's it's like a um, business incubator that kind of teach you how to, um, you know, what margin is and like how to build supply chain and things like that. Like all the things that I didn't have a background in because yeah. of my chemistry background. So that was incredible. And then we went through a couple programs after that too. I went to DC and was kind of in that startup scene in DC um, and then ended up in headquartering the business in Richmond, Virginia. And it's been a really cool home here for the business. Oh, that's great. That's great. So it sounds like you have, you had some sewing skills uh, when you started this and, and you were able to make some of your own designs for yourself at first. 
Yes. So I've been sewing since I was um, pretty little. And then, so when I was struggling with my own clothing, it was just very natural for me to go and go to the sewing machine because I'd been making clothes for, my, for myself for a while. Um, and I just made things that worked for me. And then I was very uh, involved in the amputee community. I was struggling a lot with my own prosthetic. And so I was just finding it was really helpful um, to have people in the community that I knew. Um, and sorry, my dog was scratching. Oh, that's all right. Um, we, uh, so I was really involved in the amputee community, started altering clothing for myself, started then altering clothing for friends in the amputee community, and then um, ended up kind of seeing a broader need. So we went from an alterations business. I realized that one, people across the board with disabilities were struggling with clothing. Mm. And two, the most accessible version of this was a ready-to-wear thing. Like, it's not super accessible to have to send in your clothing for alterations, right. get it back in the mail. Like, that's that's a lot. Um, so I started building it in the way that I envisioned it. Um, and it's grown since then. We were uh, launched a Kickstarter and then were scouted by Shark Tank. So we ended up going on Shark Tank in 2021 um, that aired in 2022. It was really exciting. We got a deal with Mark Cuban and Emma Greed. Um, I've grown the team since then, raised a little bit of venture capital. Um, and now we're looking at our first retail experiences. Oh, wow. So that's, you've really come a long way. So I don't know much about sort of, you know, the, the cut and sew business, right? Cause you, I mean, you do design, and then you got to cut the material. You got to sew it. So, uh, do you do you find local manufacturers for that? Do you end up going overseas? How does all that? How does that work? Explain that a little bit to our listeners. Absolutely, we do a lot overseas um, for a couple reasons. One is price point. Two is yeah. actually the the cut and sew manufacturing in the U.S. is pretty behind other countries in terms of technology. So you'd be very surprised at how advanced a lot of manufacturing is overseas compared to the U.S. Yeah. Um, and so we source in a lot of different countries. Um, supply chain has been one of the biggest challenges over the past couple of years for kind of a lot of industries, a lot of physical product industries. Supply chain has been challenging since COVID. Um, so we found that sourcing in a few different countries and having some redundancy in the supply chain has been what's worked best for us. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's been a, a really, it's been a learning curve, but a cool experience, something I never thought I would learn about in chemistry. Yeah. Can, can you take us through sort of, let's say you have an idea for a, a, a new piece of clothing. Um, can you take us through sort of the, the design process and then how you source it and how you figure out how many to order, <laughs> you know, oh my gosh, all those types of things. <laughs> okay, you know, there's a what lot. Colors, there. What colors, what sizes, right? I mean, this is like complicated. For Can you take sure. us through all of that a little bit? Absolutely. And the other thing that I'll say too is we're a little bit different because we're in this adaptive space. So yeah. like the sizing and, and grading is what we call it when you take, you have a garment, usually create it in a size medium, right? Because that's kind of middle of the road. Um, grading is what happens when you take a garment and then you make it in the small and then you grade it through, you know, 3XL. Like, what are those differences 
and it doesn't all scale the same way. So our grading process is very different because we're focused on people with disabilities who um, wheelchair users, for example, that grading is not the same as an able-bodied person. As a, um, a wheelchair user, we look at the larger sizes and compared to the smaller sizes, their bodies aren't changing in the same way as you get into the, the larger sizes. So anyway, all of that having been kind of the caveat to that, how it works traditionally. So we have an idea for a product and in our experience, we usually look at a, a target segment. So we're like, okay, I'm gonna use our wheelchair users as an example, as a really intense design process. So we're like, we wanna make pants for wheelchair users. We actually work with a lot of occupational therapists and people with disabilities in this development process to be like, let's go on a sewing machine, create kind of these hypotheses of what we would work. We learn about the challenges first, then come up with some hypothesis solutions. And then we're doing a lot of iterative testing, just basically from a sewing machine. Once we have something that we're confident is working for the majority of people in this segment that we're targeting, um, then we develop what's called a tech pack, which is like a blueprint of how this garment would be manufactured. We send that tech pack to the manufacturer and it's really difficult to find a manufacturer because one, they have to specialize in, we do a lot of denim. Denim is kind of its own category. It has its own challenges because of the washing process that comes with denim. Um, and then the trims for denim are different than other. So like you think of the shank buttons, traditionally not on clothes that aren't denim and like right. the rivets and the pocket designs and things like that. Like denim is its own beast, which I did not know until starting, starting trying to start a denim company, right? Um, so you have the tech pack, you send it out to the manufacturer, you find the manufacturer that'll work with both the material and style that you want in the price point that you want. And also um, minimums are a huge thing. So you have to find mm -hmm. a manufacturer that's willing to produce the quantity that you're looking to produce, which is really hard as a small brand because a lot of manufacturers are like, you're, that order is not big enough for us, right. but we can't right. invest that much in inventory right off the bat. So that was a challenge. Um, you go back and forth on samples, um, source, the raw material, all of the trims, so thread, the button, the zippers, all of that, coordinate getting all of that to the manufacturer, and then tell them how many you want. There's a grading process in there, so you get a size set, um, and then you hit the the go button and, and pay your deposit, and then you'll get your stuff in three to six months, depending yeah. on. Um, so, the timing of that is really challenging as an apparel business. Um, and also you asked about the ordering. And so um, it's been really interesting for us. And like, there's of course a lot of data in retail around the standard, it's a bell curve for sizes of US bodies, right? that bell curve is centered around a different point for people with disabilities because they often have comorbidities that are causing either weight loss or weight gain. Yeah. So the bell curve in our industry looks very different and there's not a lot of data around that. So we're a little bit guinea pigs in that. We're having to do our best guess. Um, and then we're learning and collecting that data. So hopefully we can 
you know, help other brands that are looking to enter this space behind us too. Yeah. So it's a art and a science. I can imagine that uh, you focus not just on sort of the fit and how it looks, but also uh, how challenging it is to put this piece garment on and to take it off, right? Because if you have disabilities, that can be a big challenge in itself. So do you also do some development on different types of fasteners and, and uh, things like that? Absolutely. Yes, we do um, some custom trims that it's really like closures and things like that, that we're thinking about as well as the overall shape. So um, there's a lot that goes into that too. And that's really kind of where we start is what's going to be easiest for someone to get on and off. And then also the other time you're interacting with your clothing a lot is in the restroom. So you think about yes. how is someone going to use the restroom in this garment? Um, so those are the things that we think about when we're on the very front end of developing. And then if there's an off the shelf trim, like a zipper that we can use, that's great. Or sometimes we've kind of gone back to the drawing board and been like, is there something that we can develop like a magnetic snap type thing that would work yeah. for somebody? So we do that too. Yeah. Oh, interesting. Interesting. So from the, from the time you sort of get an idea uh, to, to, to the, you have inventory ready to sell. What's that time horizon like? Um, we're trying to shorten it, but it's been a year to year and a half. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. So that that I can imagine that gives you some cash flow challenges in a business. Absolutely. Yeah. So we were trying to like kind of play catch up in, and we still are, you know, as a, a young company, as a startup, we're trying to get into this cycle where we're launching something kind of like every quarter, but that wow. means that a year and a half ago, we had to have that, that idea for it. So we're now trying to kind of catch up on this regular cadence of launching things. Um, and it's very challenging for cash flow at the beginning. So sure. um, there's a little bit of startup magic that yeah. happens there in the middle. Yeah, for sure. So how do you deal with sort of distribution? Um, so we have a, a 3PL, so a third-party logistics company. Um, are you talking about like actual distribution? I mean, the, that's the actual physical distribution is we use a 3PL as far as like yeah. marketing I, and sales distribution. Um, I was thinking more along marketing and sales distribution. Okay. <laughs> marketing and sales distribution um, is we have our own e-commerce website, people can order online. Um, we are marketing through healthcare organizations also, because even though we're, we're not positioning ourselves as a medical product, it tends to be that when people are struggling with clothing because of a disability, um, an occupational therapist or the prosthetist or the wheelchair provider are very involved in that. Um, and so people, when they're struggling, tend to ask that healthcare provider first. So marketing to those organizations, um, and then also doing kind of all of the things that you would expect of an apparel brand, you know, social media marketing, um, search, we're about to launch our Amazon store, and then um, we're working with some retailers also. So we're really excited. Walmart is launching an adaptive category. So just, I mean, 
a cool thing that we're seeing happening in the adaptive yeah. space is adaptive being treated as its own category. So the same way that you would search for, for example, maternity clothes, you go search for adaptive clothing if you have an adaptive need. And so Walmart's launching that. So we're working um, with them and kind of highlighted in that <coughs> launch, um, which has been a, a really cool way yeah. to get the word out about our product. And it's, it's more, I mean, the more places that people can find adaptive fashion, the more that the space is going to evolve overall. Sure. So that's been really neat. Sure. So uh, what made you decide to to use a, a, a third party for sort of the physical distribution of your product versus doing it yourself? Yeah, it came down to we had a meeting around what is going to set us apart and what are we really good at? Um, and the things that we could answer, those skills that came up in that discussion, we kept in house. And the things that did not come out in that discussion were things that we decided to um, outsource. And so distribution wasn't going to set us out, you know, set us apart from any other right. company. Right. And so they're like, great, let's not worry about it. Um, of course, there's still like, we just switched 3PLs and that was a whole journey. And like, it's never as smooth as just outsource it. Um, but that was a really great decision that we made because it's just, you know, as a small company, whatever you can not worry about is yeah. um, a strength, I think. Yeah, yeah. And and you can always make a change in the future. You can always bring that in if you want, or if, if you know, things change, uh, you can, you always have that option. Exactly. Yeah, so you get the, in the beginning, it's really important to focus on the things that you do well and the things that make a difference to you and your customers. Yes, hundred percent. Yeah, very nice. So, do you uh, do you have a, like a board of directors or a board of advisors that that works with you? We do have some board members. Um, they're mostly investors that came from yeah. the um, our financing rounds, and then we have been super lucky to bring on a lot of strategic investors early on. Um, so we have. Um, I think that's set us apart too for yeah. the age of the company, you know, really summer 2020 is kind of what I call the start date. Um, for the age of the company, we have like a tremendous amount of experience behind it because we were lucky in, in pulling on those strategic investors early. Yeah. Yeah. Very nice. Very nice. Uh, so do, do you, um, were, is there a lot of competition in this space? There are other companies doing this. I'm, I'm not familiar with it at all. Yeah, there's not. There are more than there were a few years ago. The cool thing is everybody's kind of got their little sweet spot. So mm. um, there's some brands and kids, for example. There are some brands focusing on the aging space. And so they're, they're marketing towards nursing homes and people who have caretakers. And so we're kind of in the middle of those focusing primarily on adults. We're launching some kids products too in the sensory space, but we've been until now focused primarily on adults and primarily on people who uh, we believe we can increase some level of independence through our clothing. So um, that's where we're carving out our little space. And we're also focused on denim and basics. Like what are those, um, staple pieces in your wardrobe that are going to be most impactful if you had a, a, a 
um, an accessible version of that. So like everybody needs a really great pair of jeans. Everybody needs really great basics. Um, and then we're also focused on, on kind of an accessible price point too. So that's a conversation that we have a lot is how can we keep our prices as low as possible and still be sustainable as a business? So, yeah. um, that's where we're, that's our little space we've carved out in, in adaptive. Yeah. So what, what sort of, uh, metrics do you use, uh, you know, when making decisions about, okay, we have this idea and, you know, we do some market assessment. We think this is the market size. You know, how do you how do you make that go no go decision? That's a really great question because I think it's different for us than it is for a lot of companies. So we are a social impact company. So we're measuring some impact metrics as well as um, kind of traditional ROI. The great thing is a lot of times those things overlap. Sure. Um, but we're thinking about okay, where what is the population size of, of this specific segment? So we looked at, I'm going to use our sensory friendly for an example, sensory friendly, there are estimates that about 30 million people in the U S have some sort of sensory need or sensory challenge. Um, so we're like, okay, that's a big enough market size. And then we're like, where can we have the most impact within that space? So there are a lot, not a lot, but there are, um, there are sensory friendly brands in kids, but there aren't a lot of sensory products for adults. So you're like, okay, that's where we feel like we can have the most impact in the space. And then also, I mean, we need to look at, at business metric things like how much is this going to cost to produce right. and, and things like that. So I'm really excited. We're coming out with a coat, um, in Q4 this year, um, that is for people with limited dexterity or range of motion in their shoulders, arms. Um, and that was something that we couldn't do before because the we couldn't get it at an accessible price point. But now that we're getting a little bit bigger, um, we have more manufacturing partners, we're able to bring that in as, at an accessible price point. So that's like, okay, now is the time to introduce that product. So there's a little bit of that going on yeah. too. Yeah. So one of the things I always like asking people uh, who, particularly people who manufacture things, right? You, you make things. Uh, how do you decide when to stop making a particular product and take Ooh, it off the market? Question. Yeah, That's a great question. I think, and I'm, here's how we're thinking about it. And transparently, we're not that old. So we haven't, yeah. we've discontinued one product, but it was because we, kind of came out with the V2 of oh, sure. that product yeah. after getting feedback from the first one. Um, I think uh, Trader Joe's has a really great example of this. And I don't know if everybody who asked that question, if they all have the same answer and it's Trader Joe's, but like looking at across their assortment, I can't remember what the, it, it, I think it's around 10%. Their bottom 10% performers are automatically dropped every time increment um and they bring new things in and it keeps assortment fresh sure. um so i i really like that way of looking at it i mean obviously we're looking at what we're doing is so new there's there are is not a lot of data around it so we rely a lot on customer 
interviews, customer feedback. Um, so when we get feedback, if there was ever a product that we were getting a lot of negative feedback on, obviously that's a, a sign that we wouldn't continue that too. But I yeah. think benchmarking it and looking at kind of contribution margin across all products um, is a great way to make that decision. Yeah. Do you, I, th this business seems to me to be one of those that uh, you have, you, you, you can, you can build a very passionate and devoted customer base uh, and a lot of loyalty to your products. Uh, how do you sort of think about that? And how, how have you approached? Yeah, that's something that I, one of my favorite things about the brand that we're building, um, particularly so early on, we have three colors in denim for men, three colors for women. Um, we would see people order six, seven pairs of our pants. So they're yeah. ordering more than one color of each. And so early on, I would like call or email and be like, did you mean to do this? Like, did you, you know, I, this is a large order. We only have three colors, you know? Um, and so I called and like one stuck out to me and he's like, oh no, um, I ordered six pair, pairs of pants because I'm wearing one every day of the week and then I'm washing them on Sunday. <laughs> and so that was right. like, we're like, okay, that was a signal to us that now when we make marketing decisions, we're like, we can afford to pretty heavily discount someone's first order, knowing that once they try it, they're going to come back for more. So we do a lot of kind of cohort analysis of who's coming back, how frequently are they coming back? What is the lifetime value of that customer? So we can make better right. marketing decisions on the early end, knowing that they're going to come back. Um, so that's been a, a really cool thing. And it's been, um, you know, green flags in terms of we're addressing the problem that we're, we're trying to address is that return. I think it was, um, Barbara on Shark Tank that was like, your return customer rate is your report card in terms yes. of um, brand. And so that's something that we've kind of taken to heart. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, one of the great things about selling direct is that you have that customer information and, and, and you can do those types of exercises. Once you start selling through retail, that becomes a bit more challenging, you know, unless you put some 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 manufacturers will put little tags on their garments, you know, send this in and we'll give this to you or whatever, right? Give you a 10% discount or however. Uh, but that's the nice thing about going direct. Uh, it becomes a bit more challenging as you go through normal retail distribution. Absolutely. So that's something we're gonna have to just really pay attention to the customers that are coming through us and and yeah. work with our the cool thing in our space too is because it is so new, like we're gathering data at the same time as our retail partners are gathering data. And so far people have been really willing to share that information in the interest of like advancing the space overall. Um, but yes, it's, it's hard to let go of, of owning that customer journey for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So as you've, uh started this journey a number of years ago what have what's been the biggest challenge for you 
Oh my gosh. Okay. Uh, well, we talked about supply chain already. Supply chain yes. has been a nightmare. Um, so I'm going to pick a new one. And that is, I think, um, just kind of what <laughs> this is. It's a soft skill thing. Well, they're um, important. Leadership, you know, like yeah. uh, building a team and it's um, a high performance. You know, we look at like we're a we're a sports team and we're all we're expecting really great things from each other um, and coming out of a chemistry degree where that was not um, I don't want to say soft skills weren't as valuable, but they weren't taught. Right. Yes, in, right in a chemistry degree. And I was like, I'm a people person. I like talking to people. Um, I'm going to be a great manager. Not the case. <laughs> Absolutely not the case. Like there's so much more to being a good manager than being a people person. And so that's something that I am working through and like having hot, very high expectations of myself and my own work um, outputs. And then driving others to do the same, but also empowering them to, to um, make their own decisions. Um, I think that's been something at least that I expected to be easier than it actually is, but yeah. just coming from my background. Yeah. Well, coming, you know, from almost any background, they don't teach you those skills in college and, right. and <laughs> you know, even, even in business school, it's a lot more about, you know, how to market things, how to do finance, how to do all these sort of other things as opposed to the soft skills. And and we all we all learn how important they are. One of the interesting things that I've often thought about is is if you look at the sports world, the sports world, almost all all athletes, whether they're in an individual sport or a team sport, have a coach. That's that's helping them with the skills that they need to perform their job. And in business, we don't do that. Right. We, yeah, we have a board of directors. We might have some advisors, but we really don't have like a coach who's sort of helping us. I mean, there are coaches out there that you can hire and people people do hire them. Uh, but it's pretty rare that that people kind of go out and seek that additional advice to helping them sort of manage their business in a broad sense. Yes, I agree. Um, and, you know, it's something that I kind of did from the beginning is relied on mentors a lot. Yeah. And my mentors have changed over the years. I'm not working with the same ones now that I was early on. Some of them um, are the same, but as kind of the business has evolved, my needs and mentors have evolved, but I have been very pleasantly surprised by the generosity of this startup community in willing to mentor and give advice. Like I have never felt like, man, I don't have anybody that I can ask about this. Like it's been, actually been really cool yeah. um, and how like it can be cutthroat and it can be competitive. Um, but there, there's also a lot of generosity in startups and like rooting for each other. And I do love that about entrepreneurship. Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great point. Uh, I would say that eighty percent of the people that you ask for help, long as it's not financial, <laughs> they're gonna they'll they'll take the time, right? They'll yes. have a cup of coffee yeah. with you. They'll go to lunch with you, and 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 they'll they'll share their experiences with you, uh, which is just great. And I think a lot of people don't take advantage of that. So it's it's really nice to hear that 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 you're doing that. 
Yeah. And then I try to like extend that same, you know, I feel like there are so many things. The mentality that I have is like, I have learned mistakes the hard way. I would love for someone else to, you know, benefit from me learning it the hard way, you know, so they don't have to learn it the hard way. Right. Um, Right. I think that's just a, a cool thing about the startup community. Yeah. Hey, you know, we've been chatting for about a half hour here, so I want to start wrapping this up. Uh, if people want to find out more about your business and you, where's the best place for them to do that? Yes. Our website is no-limits.com and that limits is spelled L-I-M-B-I-T-S. Perfect. I will make sure that's in the show notes so people can reach out to you. Uh, is there anything that I should have asked you that I haven't or anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, I think something else that's cool about what we do and something I'm very passionate about is hiring people with disabilities also. Mm. So I encourage anyone who is out there listening, maybe uh, building a startup to reach out to um, vocational rehabilitation services or um There are quite a few uh, employment platforms that focus on people with disabilities and people with disabilities are problem solvers just all day, every day because of how inaccessible the world is. And so um, something that we've done is had a focus on disability employment and it has paid off in spades. And it's been um, something that's really cool about our company that I would encourage others to look into as well as they're building teams. Um, it's been really cool because any product that you're building, if you bake accessibility into that along the way, um, ends up a hundred times better for not just your disabled users, but for all of your users. And the best way to do that is to have disability talent on your team. Yeah, that's a great, great way to end the podcast. It's a wonderful observation. Erica, you've been a real pleasure to chat with, uh, and I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's been really nice. I'm so glad we had the chance to talk. Have a great rest of your day. Yeah, thank you. You too. All right, Bela, that was a cool story, okay? And these are the reasons why I love entrepreneurship. I mean, I think I've told this story before on the podcast, but I didn't get into academics. I didn't get into business to be an entrepreneur. I didn't think, I thought it was kind of stupid, honestly, right? But then when I see stories like this, where there's genuine needs that aren't being met and small business people can jump in and fill that need and make lives better, um, create a business right around this. Uh, this to me is awesome, right? So I was just um, really excited to hear this story. Bela, what are your t- key takeaways um, from this story? Yeah, I think I think there's a couple really great examples of, of, of several things here. One is this notion of finding a niche and, and, and focusing on that niche. Uh, and I think in the in the world recently uh what's happened is is because of global supply chain um and the ability to sell online what was a niche a niche 50 years ago or 40 years ago had to be much bigger than what the niche is today because 50 years ago you you could only sell your product within i don't know 25 30 maybe 50 miles of where your location was and it was a storefront that's the way it kind of worked and and now you can sell your product anywhere in the world so so you can reach uh you know th- there might only be 
within your within your niche, there might only be two or three customers within a 50 mile radius of where you're at. But on the globe, there could be thousands. So I think this is a great example of sort of uh, global supply chain and ability to sell online and, and you can reach the global market, uh, which I think makes these types of businesses possible. I, I think I think the other kind of takeaway that I had from this was this notion of building your supply chain and how it impacts cash flow, right? So there, there she, she designs she designs the clothing and and then there's a process to get it made and it's a it's a long drawn out process right it, it, as she said it takes you know 9 months or so and in that process you're you're going back and forth with offshore suppliers uh, because this sort of skill and manufacturing capability really doesn't exist very much in the United States anymore so so that represents significant cash flow challenges to a business because from the time you, let's say, design your product to the time you can put it on the shelf and start selling it, you know, nine months has elapsed and you spent a significant amount of money, uh, not just on the inventory, but also sort of this notion of, you know, the design process and going back and forth. So I think that's another thing you got to think about in businesses is this notion of cash flow and, and how you can manage it. And and the beautiful thing about this is <clears throat> is this sort of social impact, right? I mean, it just makes you feel good, right? You hear this story and you go, "All oh, right." Not only does it make great business sense, and 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 I think you can build a very successful business here, but it also has this nice impact of 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 making people's lives better, as opposed to we're just out here trying to print money, right? We're we're trying to do something and help people. So I I think those were my key take takeaways. How about you, Mike? Yeah, creating value, right? And from multiple perspectives. No, I totally agree. And, you know, I thought another part of this story that was really cool was learning from the incubator program. You know, this is a chemistry major, right? And she, I mean, I think this shows that you don't need to say, oh, I was born to be a business person, right? That there's a community out there and there's lots of mechanisms. I don't think that she, uh, you know, was a, is, is unique in this aspect, but there's lots of way to learn these skills. And she clearly learned a lot from these skills. Right. Yeah. She learned the technical skills in terms of cash flow analysis and right supply chain things that she talked about. But the same same time, the soft skills and talking about, um, you know, being a leader and building an organization and um, mentorship. Um, I think all this stuff was really cool. You know, her her reflection on the generosity of the startup community is something you and I have seen time and time again on this podcast and in our teaching and in our lives. Um, and then I think hopefully we're good stewards too. We've benefited from the help of others and we give it back. And I think this podcast is one way we try to do that in a small way. Um, but I think that, that, you know, she's really done well to go out and seek mentors and ask for advice. And she was pleasantly surprised that she got, has gotten so much support. You and I, this doesn't surprise at all. We see it all the time. And I think we encourage our listeners, right, to go out there and get out in the network and the community and, and just ask for help and people will be generous with their time. Um, what do you think are the elements that Erica had that were really great ideas that entrepreneurs um, should be aware of, especially in the B2B space? What types of things that do you think could help our listeners? Yeah. Before before I dive into that question, Mike, I want to build a little bit on what you said. <clears throat> I think this notion of thinking that you have to you have to have a business degree in order to go into business is a fallacy, right? Mm -hmm. And she's a great example. She's a chemistry major, uh, and and I think what people need to realize 
is is that if you raise your hand, particularly in the United States, if you raise your hand and say, I, I want to start a business and here's my idea, uh, there are lots and lots of people who are willing to help. Some of them in formal organizations and economic development organizations within with you know within the region you live in. Uh, there's national economic development organizations, there's these incubators, and there's just individuals who who have been successful and and love to give back. Uh, and and so so your challenge is is to find those individuals and find those organizations because then they can give you give you that assistance that you need. And I think Erica also is a great example of that. She 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 did that and 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 it has has taught her the things that she didn't learn in chem when she got her chemistry degree. Now, back to your question. So I think some of the some of the things that you really need to be aware of in, in the in the B to C, so business to consumer uh, space, selling to consumers. So I think this notion of building a brand is really, really important. Think about the products that you like, that you buy, and 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 the brand that they represent, right? Look at clothing. I think clothing, and this is clothing, is a great example. Lots of clothing has logos on it, right? And and that logo means something to you because you decided to wear that logo, and it's it's sort of represents something. So think about what your brand, what you what you want it to represent. Um, I I think this notion of sort of looking at your customers or your cohort, the, the, organ, the, the, the group that you're trying to sell to, what their characteristics are, how can you reach them? Uh, where do they, where, 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 what are the communication channels uh, to, that, to that cohort, I think is really, really important. I, and I think the other thing that a lot of people don't think about is uh, return customers, right? I mean, B2B businesses measure that all the time. Uh, so, you know, what's if, if I have if I'm selling one year contracts, you know, how many of my customers renew those contracts? Well, in in in, in clothing or B2C or B, uh, yeah, B2C to consumers, I think that's another important thing to measure. And and these days you have the tools to do that. And Eric and I talked about this a little bit where the, the challenge, particularly when you're selling direct, right, you have all your customer information and demographics, which is great. When you start selling to retailers, now the retailer owns the customer. It becomes a little bit more challenging, but there are ways that you can do that. So for a number of years, I ran a, a bicycle manufacturing business and, and we sold all of our products, very high-end bicycles, uh, through dealers. And so we didn't know who our customers were. So we put together a, a simple program where there was a little hang tag on the bicycle and it said, fill this out and we will send you a free pocket knife or a free shirt or T-shirt that has our brand on it or whatever. My whole objective there was to get my customer's name and address. <laughs> That's what I wanted. And, and you know, this is sort of pre-internet. Uh, and and that, that was how we did that. And we got a huge response into that because people love filling out stuff like that to get something for free. <laughs> right now, the that was built into the price of the bicycle, but it worked really, really great. And we developed this big database of, of customers, which prior to that we didn't have. The only customers we have were the ones who were returning their bikes because they broke and it was a warranty issue, right? Which isn't the only customers you wanna have information on. So my point here is you, you wanna you want to figure out how to be able to communicate with your customer, 
and measure how many times they're coming back and buying additional products from you. And it was interesting how Erica said that sort of happened serendipitously with her, right? Because it was like this person ordered ordered six of them or seven of them, whatever it was. He goes, why did you do that? <laughs> and the explanation I thought was great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All, data can be your best friend, even in a small business. That's really yeah. important. Yeah. But yeah, no, Bela, thanks for asking thoughtful questions and spending some time um, to give Erica and No Limits a bit of attention. I mean, this isn't a paid ad or anything, and we have nothing invested in this, but to me, especially having known personally several people with disabilities um, throughout my life, to me, linking people who need adaptive clothing with companies like No Limits can be a really valuable life-changing connection. Um, so I, I can't, and you know, I can't enough thank you for having some insight and foresight to do this. And I can't underscore enough Erica's statements about hiring workers with disabilities. I think that call she made at the end is something we should all listen to. That there's a lot of people that look and uh, and and uh, have different life experiences than you and I, and these are customers too, and they are valuable employees too. And the more we can open up our thinking to the fact that there's lots of people that live their life in different ways um, that can add value to our organizations, I think are uh, it's something that's worth thinking about as we're um, you know those of us who are hiring people are going through our next uh, wave of recruiting and uh, employees and, and selecting employees that this is stuff that's really really uh, to me really important and really cool. So. Um, yeah. I thought this was great. <clears throat> yeah, agreed, Mike. Agreed, Mike. A great way to sort of wrap this one up, I think. Yep. All right. Well, listeners, thanks for, um, again, spending some time with us. And we hope you found this episode as interesting and thought-provoking as we did. Um, as always, if you have questions about what we've discussed, um, please get in touch with us. Our email is bela.and.mike at gmail.com. Hey, and please do follow the podcast uh, if you haven't already. So until next time, signing off from upstate New York. See you soon, Mike. Sounds great, Bela, from over here in Münster, Germany. We'll talk to everybody next time. Okie doke.